Welcome to Fentrepreneur. Excited to be kicking off season two with Andrew Graham from Barwell. Great to have you on. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great to be here. I'd love to talk about your views on the fintech space and macro. You've been uh, involved in this industry here in Canada for a long time. So look forward to your insights. As we often do with the Fentrepreneur podcast, we start with kind of a backstory. So tell us your life story in a few minutes, basically, how it led to you ultimately starting this business. Sure. Well, look, I'll, I'll try to give a you know fairly brief version. I don't want to bore all your listeners uh, right up front. So look, I've had a, a pretty varied career. I grew up in Ottawa. And after studying at university, I worked a bunch of different jobs. I spent a year working at a nonprofit where I got to travel to a lot of different interesting places in the world. I then spent the next four years working in politics in Ottawa, working for a couple of different cabinet ministers. And both of those jobs were really great. Some of the best jobs that I've had in my life are jobs where you get more responsibility than you deserve based on your your CV and level of experience. And both those jobs were really like that. I was given a lot more to do than I had any right to do. And I had the room to make mistakes and figure it out and learn in both those cases. That really set me up well for sort of the next phase where I went to business school and did an MBA for a couple of years and then, you know, worked in the in the private sector. I worked for a couple of larger companies, both in tech and in finance, and then decided after that to, you know, leave the world of big companies and found uh, what would become Borwell, which was at that intersection of tech and finance. So I really took a lot of the experiences that I've had and you know, decided that that was the time in my life that I wanted to you know, take the plunge and, and uh, found a company. What uh, drove the decision to get into business, to leave politics and nonprofits and, and go do the MBA? Well, I mean, I think the decision to do the MBA was what I was at a point in my life where I'd been working for five years and I knew I wanted to, you know, take a sort of take a step back from from my career. And I was fortunate to have the the time to do that and really think harder about what to do next and also learn a bunch of stuff. I mean, I'd never worked in the private sector. I didn't have a great grasp of, you know, finance, for example, or, you know, even I had how to run an organization with a PL. So Going to get my MBA uh, was a terrific way to meet a whole bunch of interesting people and you know learn a lot about business. I, I like to say that compared to my friends who were coming from investment banking or you know consulting or whatever, I got a lot more value out of the MBA because I came in knowing so much less than they did. I didn't have many classes where I'd be like, I already know this already. So much of it was new. And I I really feel I learned a lot. And got a great perspective on different careers. I, you know, I met people who would come from careers like, you know, private equity or entrepreneurship or what have you. And these are not careers that I had, you know, I had experience with. So it was a terrific opportunity for me to sort of think about what's next and, and pivot my career. And you're, you're a pretty modest guy. It's not just any MBA, right? It's the the creme de la creme of MBAs at Harvard. You must uh, have some interesting colleagues from the back in the day. I was really, you know, fortunate to go to to Harvard Business School. And I think it's a great program because they, they take a, a really expansive view. Like as much as it's called Harvard Business School, the school's mission is to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. And that that's beyond just business. They view the program as one of fostering leadership and building the skills you need to be an effective leader. If you're going to be running a nonprofit or you're going to be running you know, part of government, or if you're going to be running a for-profit, in all those cases, you need to know how to manage people how to you know read a, an income statement and understand what it's telling you 
So there's a lot of universal skills that are necessary, regardless of what kind of organization you're leading. So that really fit in well with um, with what I wanted to do. And it's it's probably also the only time where I was viewed as a candidate adding diversity. So because I was coming from government and a nonprofit background, compared to these really smart folks who were coming from investment banking or consulting, I, I was actually sort of more a bit different, uh, you know, as a Canadian coming from government. So I was the first and last time I was able to up the the diversity quotient uh, in, a, in a program. So what did you see in the market that made you excited about jumping in as an entrepreneur and starting this business? So, you know, I started Borowell in 2014, and that was a really exciting time in fintech. It was part of the, the early fintech boom that was happening across the world. And there were businesses starting in many, many different parts of fintech. And from my time working in financial services, I saw firsthand that there was a lot that was broken or that could be better. In particular, uh, the way consumers are offered debt or handled debt is very challenging for many people. You know, credit cards are a great way to buy things. You know, in other words, they're like a transaction, a product that you can use to make transactions. Um, but they are also a debt product or they can be. If you don't pay your bill off in full every month, you know, suddenly this thing that you use to buy something is now also a loan and it's a very expensive loan. It's a hard product for many consumers to get their head around because it's, you know, there are, are there can be less expensive ways to borrow. So the world of finance is very complex and it's hard for many consumers to navigate it. And technology can help people navigate it better. You put all those ideas together and it just, for me, screamed opportunity. And uh, so I decided to leave my, you know, leave the sort of the corporate path and found Borwell and I eventually, you know, uh, pulled in other other people to be as co-founders. And I've been really fortunate to have terrific people on the journey with me, but that was sort of what, you know, what made it come about. Maybe the other thing I'd add is just from like a personal perspective, I got some advice when I was thinking about whether to do this, that really resonated. And that was in any job, you're going to have good days and bad days, right? No job's perfect. And so you have to decide what do you want a bad day to look like? And in a big company, a bad day is often about frustration. You can't get something approved by the capital committee or, you know, the CEO who's five layers above you, uh, you know, didn't have time to, you know, meet and approve your project. That There is a certain level, I think anyone who can, anyone who's been in corporate life can, can relate. There's, there, there are certainly frustrating days. And when you're starting a company, by contrast, the negative emotion that's most common isn't so much frustration, it's fear. Am I going to be able to make payroll this month? Like, oh, my, my key engineer just quit. How am I going to ship these features that I promised to a customer? Like, what's going to happen? And especially in the early days, that, that and I think any entrepreneur can relate to this, any entrepreneur who's being honest, at least, can relate to this. There are, there are those moments of fear come fast and furious. And by the way, sometimes they, they come an hour before good news and you feel like you're on top of the world. And then, you know, an hour later, something goes wrong and you feel that fear emotion again. And so I really decided that I was kind of much more comfortable feeling fear than I was feeling frustration. And I think that's, I've never kind of looked back. I think that's been very gratifying for me. I, I would much rather be in control or feel like I'm in more control of my, of my problems than, you know, being in a corporate environment that might be more safe and where the downside is, is less, but where I feel ultimately less in charge. That's got to be one of the best articulations I've heard on the, the yeah. trade-off between working in a big business and being an entrepreneur. Well, I wish I could take credit for it. <laughs> I think the credit uh, goes to Yusri Basada, who's um, 
you know, CEO of Home and has had a great career and, and has been an advisor for me at different at different times. I think it, it's a great, it really is a great line. You got to make a nice little post about that on LinkedIn with some colorful pictures in the back and then put his name at the end. So we make sure that that quote lasts forever. Well, if we're going to put his name to it, I'll make sure that I, we will, I, I should double check with him, but yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. One of the things that you talked about that, that was interesting is, you know, part of you wanting to do this was really the the consumer understanding of you know getting access to loans and stuff like that and even for someone that's been in finance for a long time there's a lot of times that I question like you know, what goes into a credit score like how is this affected why is this going up why is this going down so can you talk a little bit about the credit score model and some of the feedback you get from consumers where's the biggest gaps in understanding and things like that sure so we have a a system in Canada that's very similar to the system in the US where every time you take out a loan and every time you make a payment against a loan and other things, it's not just loans, but let, let's stick with that for now. Every time you take out a loan and make a payment against a loan, it gets that that information gets shared with what are called credit bureaus. And in Canada, we have TransUnion and Equifax. And you know all of that data is then stored so that the next time you want to take out a loan, a lender can check and they can say, is this you know Dave person a responsible borrower? How much other debt? Does he have somewhere else? Has he paid back in the past? And what credit bureaus have done is they've figured out how to package that into a three-digit number called a credit score. So they take all of David's you know, past history as a borrower. Has he paid back? How much debt you know, does he have out at the moment? How much of that is he using? And they package that into a three-digit number, uh, typically between 300 and 900. It depends on, on the exact kind of credit score. And that's your credit score. And the higher, the better. You know that that's a very easy way or, or a shorthand way for a lender to make a decision about whether to to give you a loan or mortgage or what have you. Yeah, just on on that topic, I mean, there's there's a, a few factors that seems like everybody is familiar with in terms of what can affect your credit score. And I don't know if uh, if there's other things that you can share with us or if this really encompasses it. But the amount of times someone pulls your re- credit report, you know, your payment history, adding or or removing credit availability, things like that. You know, is there other things about the credit score that, you know, listeners and, and consumers can learn about? Everything you said is is correct there. I think the, the number one thing that affects your credit score is to what extent are you paying, you know, paying against your obligations. You need to make your payments every month against whatever loans you have outstanding. If you've got a credit card, you need to pay at least the minimum balance every month. That's like the most single most important thing. And you know, sometimes people run into challenges by either forgetting they have a credit card or else maybe there's some miscommunication between them and their bank and they have a credit card outstanding they didn't realize or a loan outstanding they didn't realize. And even if it's a small amount, like it could be a $10, you know, $10 balance. If you're not paying that every month, that can really negatively affect your score. You know, one of the reasons why everybody should check their credit score and their credit report is to make sure that, you know, you understand everything that's on there because mistakes happen, right? Sometimes we forget about credit cards that we may have, or else you know, mistakes happen on, on a bank's end. Maybe um, you paid something back, but the bank didn't record that, or you know, heaven forbid, someone out there has stolen your name and has taken out a credit card in your name. Those are all reasons why you should check your credit score and report. So that, I think that's the most important thing. And then you're right, after that, there's lots of other factors that go into a credit score. Another important one is the fancy term is credit utilization. So if you've got a credit card with a $1,000 limit, and you've you have a five hundred dollar balance outstanding. That means you're using fifty percent, right? You're using ha- half of your available limit. 
And in general, it's good to keep that usage, that, that credit utilization below 30%. So you don't want to be maxing out your credit card every month. Even if you pay it down in full, if you're maxing it out every month, lenders don't like that. They don't like to see that. You know, another thing that's important is the age of your oldest credit. So if you have a credit card that you've had for 10 years, you know, you may not want to cancel it. You know, you may just want to leave it open, even if you don't want to use it anymore, just leave it open because showing a lender that you've had a credit card or any credit product for 10 years is a positive sign. It shows that you know how to handle credit. You've been able to have this relationship for 10 years with a bank or other lender. So that's another one of those things that can, you know, make a difference as well as that age of age of oldest trade, it's called. Right. One thing I've always thought is a bit of a, a gap in the credit scoring system is that it's obviously focused on the liability side of your personal balance sheet. You know, not that there's an easy way to do it, but it would be great if it could factor in the asset side of your balance sheet and what your profile looks like from an earnings perspective. You know, because I think I think there's definitely on the kind of higher end of kind of more affluent, you probably have some some lower credit scores just because they're not necessarily like organized on all their bills, but you know, they're definitely good for whatever loan you're going to give them. What do you think about that? So, I mean, look, you know, David, you're obviously very, very experienced as a lender. So you don't need me to tell you how, how lending works, but I think the answer to that is, you know, two things typically go into a lending decision. What's their willingness to repay? Do they have a track record of making payments against other kinds of debt? And then do they have an ability to repay? Okay, do they have enough income or enough assets to support you know, the loan they're going to take out? I, I may have every intention to pay, but if I lose my job, then I'm not going to be able to repay. So you know, willingness to pay and ability to pay, I think, are the, are the most important things. A credit score really only measures the first one. It's only measuring willingness to pay. And I think you know, your income and your assets speaks to your ability to pay. You know, I think that's why assets are not included. I think that's the argument people would give. Why are assets not included in credit scores? Just like income isn't included in credit scores, because th that really speaks to your ability to pay. But if you're forgetful or you're bad, having a lot of assets actually won't mean you'll pay back because you know you you don't have any intention to, or or you know you've got a bad track record of doing it. So I think that's the answer. I that that's the answer I would give in terms of why do assets not figure into credit scores? But that's not to say. Look, the credit scoring system is not is far, far from perfect. I'm not trying to say it is by any means, but I think assets and income have a you know an important place in a lending decision, but it's kind of separate from the, the credit score. Bringing this back to Barwell, one of the big innovations was uh, you were the first to offer, if I'm not mistaken, free credit scores to Canadians, right? And I believe millions of Canadians have used that service here. That's right. Talk about that journey. How did you kind of come up with that and how did you get that done? We're probably best known for being the first company in this market to offer credit scores for free. And you're right, we've had over 2 million people sign up for that service. And, and you know, many of them continue to use us every week to see their, their credit score and report. You know, but before that, we actually started life as a lender. We offered loans to people who were looking to refinance credit cards. I talked, I've spoken before about some of the challenges that people have with credit cards. And so we started off trying to solve that problem by offering low-cost loans to individuals. And one of the problems we were having is how do you get the word out about yourself as a new lender? And how do you attract how do you help a consumer understand if you're going to be a good fit for them as a lender? And so offering someone their credit score seemed to be a great way to do both. We would get the word out about Borowell and we would know right off the top if someone would be a good fit for our products or not. And so that was the initial motivation to offer free credit score. And really what ended up happening is offering free credit score 
dramatically accelerated the rate of growth of people coming to us. And many people coming to Borowell to get their free credit score didn't qualify for our very, you know, fairly niche personal loan product that we were offering at that point. And so what we eventually did was we started helping them find loans from other lenders or financial products from other providers, banks and, and others. And that part of the business ended up growing much more quickly and being a, um, you know, just a, a more successful, I suppose, line of business than our original lending business, which now we uh, we actually don't do anymore. We stopped we stopped making Borwell branded loans a couple of years ago, and you know have focused on matching people with the best financial products from across the whole industry. We have virtually all you know credit cards and lenders in Canada on our platform, so we can match people to the absolutely best product. Andrew, one of the things that I really love about what you guys did recently, well, relatively recently, I guess, is not only just telling people about credit scores, but really helping them rebuild it. And the biggest innovation that I saw was the the, the building your credit through your rent payments. That was a really innovative product. Tell us a little bit about that, number one, and what the gap was there. And number two, what was the challenges? Why, why hasn't this been introduced a long time ago? Maybe it seems logical. Great question. So we launched Rent Advantage back in July. Um, and what it allows you to do is it, for renters, typically the biggest payment they make in a month is their rent payment. And in many cases, rent payments can be as large as or bigger than a mortgage payment. So, you know, in Toronto, the average rent payment is something like $2,000 a month. Well, that, that may be, you know, much larger than a mortgage in some other market, for example. And historically, renters have never gotten credit for that as part of their credit report or their credit history. So mortgages have factored into credit reports and credit scores, but rental payments have not. And so we teamed up with Equifax to solve this problem. And we said, well, why don't we be the link between the consumer and you, Equifax, the credit bureau? And you know, Equifax was a really a terrific partner on this journey. We worked through a lot of the details together on this. And you know, we were really, really pleased to launch this with them. And so a consumer now, you know, a Borwell member can sign up and report their their rent, and we double check that they, you know, we they essentially link their bank account so we can see the rental payment, which we then to report report to Equifax. And you know, why did this never happen before? I think the the reason is because there, you know, the rental market is so fragmented. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of landlords across the country. Some landlords, you know, might own one unit or two units. Not all landlords are are big companies. You know, for Equifax or any credit bureau to take all that data, you have to make relationships with you know thousands of landlords, and that's very hard to do. Versus, you know, how many credit card issuers are there in Canada? That's a small, much much smaller number. It'd be in the you know right. dozens or or maybe hundreds. Uh, you know, versus in the th tens of thousands. So what we've done is we've essentially you know solved that problem by saying, well, you know, rather than going through landlords, which by the way many renters don't want to do. Many renters don't have a good relationship with their landlord or don't want to have to ask their landlord, or maybe the landlord's too busy and can't be bothered to report rent. So we've said, let's let the individual do this themselves and we'll verify it by connecting to their, to their bank account. And this is really important. The average renter has a credit score a hundred points lower than the average homeowner, right? A hundred points. Wow. And so that just makes it like life is already hard enough if you don't own a home in Canada. Real estate prices are expensive. It is very hard to go from being a renter to a homeowner. We all know that. You know, let's not make a quirk of the credit system make it even harder for renters to get on the the homeownership uh, train. 
That's amazing, man. You're really helping a lot of people out with that product. That really resonated with me. You know, today I can download Barwell. I can, you know, basically work on my credit health through monitoring and through some of these credit building products like Run Advantage and uh, through Refresh, uh, which you acquired a couple of years back. And then, I, of course, I can I can find credit products. What are you most focused on now as as leader of the business? Are you are you trying to bring more products into the platform? Are you trying to acquire more customers? What's your sort of longer term strategic vision, and and how are you working on that today? So we're really focused on helping uh, consumers find financial prosperity, and I think that starts with having a clear picture of your of your credit and where you want to go. And I think that's even more important in a situation of economic economic challenge or economic dislocation. So if we're going into a recession in Canada, as we may may well be, we know there's going to be a lot of people who are all, who are going to be even more concerned about their personal finances. And the reality is that when you survey Canadians, and by the way, when you survey Americans and others, and you ask them, what is your number one worry in life? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? Over and over again, the number one response to that question is my finances. More than health, more than you know, family or relationships, the number one thing that keeps people up at night is their finances. And 50% of households in Canada live paycheck to paycheck. Even many households that are earning very, very good income, making all those bill payments every month is hard enough. And by the way, it was hard before interest rates started rising. And now interest rates are rising if you have a variable rate mortgage or you have to refinance your mortgage, suddenly you're now paying more for the same thing. And grocery prices are up. Everything's more expensive. You know, my biggest focus over the next, call it year, couple of years, is how do we ensure that Borwell has the presence and the product mix to help people through what could be a really challenging period economically? Um, and I think that comes down to, you know, what do we do today and what do we, what do we sort of aspire to do? We help people understand their credit through free credit score and our credit education suite. We help people use their credit by finding the right products. Then we help people build their credit. And I think those remain the three sort of cornerstones. I think there's a lot more we could do in each one. We don't have to go, I won't take you through all of it, but certainly in terms of building credit, for example, I think there's more we can do when it comes to finding other sources of of data in, in a consumer's life that prove that they're they're responsible with their money what are other ways we can we can help them uh, build credit are there other kinds of financial products that are missing in the market where borowell could could offer a solution directly to consumers so we're, we're very focused on building out and building on the relationship that we have with you know millions of Canadians already do you plan to ever get into sort of the asset side of the personal balance sheet with wealth products or are you really focused on solving the credit side. I think the asset side is very important because part of the solution from living paycheck to paycheck is actually having assets, uh, especially having like basic savings. But again, the reality is if you're living paycheck to paycheck, the asset side isn't the major focus. The major focus is how do I make sure that money coming in is greater than or equal to money going out? So you know, the asset side is, I would say, a lower priority for us than helping solve the like how do you make sure that you're allocating the cash that comes in as effectively as possible? How you have you optimized debt payments, et cetera? I think there's a lot to be to be done there. And then how do you help people start building nest egg or that emergency fund that can help people get through tougher times? You touched on it earlier, which is that 
interest rates are rising at a rate that none of us in this podcast episode have ever experienced in our lifetimes. How do you see that affecting your business? You mentioned that consumers are going to be paying even more attention to personal finances. What are some other effects do you see? Uh, you know, more people hopping on the platform, different products um, moving through the platform more than than before. Like, how do you see that affecting your business? And then I'd like to zoom out and talk about the space broadly in fintech after. So as interest rates rise and products like mortgages get more expensive, we're seeing already and we expect to see more consumers wanting to shop. If you were paying, you know, $100 a month for something and now you're paying $130 a month for something, uh, you're much more likely to then want to look and sort of say, can I get a better deal somewhere? So we're already seeing a lot of that shopping behavior. I think what we don't know yet is what's the response going to be from lenders. I mean, you know, some lenders are uh, seeing this as an opportunity to gain market share. Others are raising rates. Others are tightening credit. So that we haven't seen the full story yet on the lender side. So, but we do believe that we're entering a period of where there's going to be more shift, more shopping, and more shifting. And we can be really helpful in that sort of environment. So I think that's important. We also think that credit building is going to be more important than ever in an environment where um, the economy's, you know, struggling or in recession. There's going to be more people who are going to see the importance of building credit. There's going to be more people who maybe turn down for credit. And I think if you're turned down for credit, that can be a real wake-up call to say, gosh, I got to do something about this. And, you know, it's our job to be there to try to help help people in that situation. And so what do you think happens more broadly in the fintech industry? You're, you've been you know, part of our industry association, the Canadian Lenders Association. You know most of the companies doing things in the space. And I know you've actually been an active venture investor. What do you see... Um, for the industry in general? Is it going to be helpful or is it going to hurt or does it depend? There's a broad answer to like what's happening in, in tech because as interest rates have been going up, we've seen a big pullback in tech valuations. And that's especially true in fintech, right? We've got public fintech companies that are down like 70, 80%, depending on, on the one you look at. And I think what the, you know, one of the main signals the market is sending is having a business model that actually works is important. So in 2000, 2001, you could paper over almost any problem with fast growth. And there was a patience in the market to sort of say, oh, well, this company is growing 50, 100% a year. You know, Maybe the unit economics don't work, but they'll figure it out later. Look at look how much market share they're taking. Whereas today, I think investors are saying there needs to be a business, there needs to be fundamentally a business here with unit economics that work, where your cost of acquiring a customer you know, is less than the revenue you earn from the customer, the margin you earn from the customer. So I think that's the first big change we're seeing in tech, and that's very applicable to fintech. There's a bunch of fintech models that just maybe never worked uh, and that weren't going to work, and the time is up for models like that. So I think that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is I think in fintech specifically, there are models that will be much harder in a higher interest rate environment, and especially any model that involves lending I think you know we saw the emergence in the last few years of buy now pay later as a you know huge factor um, in fintech and you know that industry really hasn't existed yet in a world of higher rates. The default business model in that industry is one where the consumer doesn't pay any interest, and it's essentially the merchants that are funding the uh, those programs. So if your cost of capital is going up as a BNPL provider. You know, how do you cover that? So are merchants going to pay more or do you start charging consumers? Maybe all of that will work fine, but it's, it is a new world for 
for that kind of lender. And that's true as well for other kinds of lenders. Like if you are a mortgage player, you know, your cost of capital is now higher. You've got to charge more for, for a mortgage. So it's a different world that we're entering and uh, we'll, we'll see which, uh, which fintech models uh, thrive and which, which don't. Yeah, on the BNPL point, uh, you know, we're obviously in the space with our tablet product, uh, but it's a B2B BNPL solution. Different BNPL businesses have different proportions of their volume being done through a 0% offer to the ultimate borrower. And I think to your point, you know, if you're doing a ton of volume at 0% to the customer, you know, increasing 0% to something greater than zero could be a real conversion hit. If you're already charging the customer something and you're yep. just increasing that rate a bit, probably going to be less of a hit to your conversion. And you can probably pass some of that on and not lose, not lose a lot of volume. In our case with B2B, and you know we're still in the early innings and, and we'll see what our mix ends up being. But our thesis is that the businesses that are using Tabit to make payments for supplies and so forth, see the value of preserving their working capital of getting access to credit to grow their business and we'll be willing to pay some cost to that. And that a lot of what we'll do will end up being a hybrid fee model where we're making our revenue from both the, the merchant and the ultimate buyer. But we'll, we'll see how that play out and it's, it's how that plays out. And it's certainly going to be an interesting time these next few years. I think you're right. I think the difference between zero and more than zero is significant. Yeah. But, you know, going from six to seven or, or eight, you know, uh, is a, not as big of a deal. All right. So, Andrew, we we, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, um, just kind of bringing it back to the fintech and some of the innovation that's happening in fintech. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Rent Advantage program that you guys have now is is leveraging open banking, which is essentially the access to data from a banking, from people's bank accounts and so on, to be able to make credit decisions or other services like yours. One, how would you see open banking in general influencing more fintechs and, and how has it affected your, your company so far? So in Canada, we don't have open banking yet. We don't have true open banking. You're absolutely right that our rent advantage product, the way we verify that someone has paid their rent is we connect to their bank account through a technology that people call screen scraping. And I'm sure many, many of us have done this. You, you know, you essentially have to put in your client card number or, or login information and password. And then that then the third party can take the get the data. And mm-hmm. you know, we have to do that because there is no true open banking in Canada. We don't have a system of open banking like they do in the UK or Europe or Australia. And what open banking means is that the consumer has the ability to have their financial services provider, their bank or whatever, share their data with a third party of their choice. So in this case, the way it should work is I should be able to say to my bank, share my data, share the transaction, the monthly rent transaction with Borowell. Like that's how it should work. That the system just doesn't exist in Canada, and we, and we are certainly behind other parts of the world. So we are part of efforts that many others in the industry are involved with to try to create an open banking system in Canada that would make this much easier. With our Rent Advantage product, the single biggest sort of technical choke point we have is in that bank account connection phase, because many banks make it difficult for a service like, like ours, like Rent Advantage, to get to that data that, that shows rent. Right? They don't, there's right. no system saying they have to allow the customer to share that rental data, so they don't do it or they make it very hard. And so that's why we need open banking in Canada. I think Rent Advantage is a terrific 
sort of t- proof point for that. Like it would work better. More people would be able to use it if we had open banking. Yeah, same would apply for the products offered at our company. Given your kind of lobbying efforts thus far and and perhaps even leaning on your experience working in politics earlier in life, what do you feel is a likelihood that the government gets this right anytime soon? I think there's a lot of effort underway right now. There's you know various consultations going on. There's certainly been a number of commitments by the government, both in their platform at the last election and since, to establish a system of open banking. Like with many policies, the devil is in the details. And I think we will get some open banking system in the next 18 months, at least announced in the next 18 months. The question is, how well will it work? How consumer friendly will it be? How um, you know seamless will it be for a consumer to, for example, give a, give a company like Borowell the ability to see their rent payments. So I want to see a system that makes it easy. It shouldn't be harder to do that than it is to sign up for a credit card. That should be the test. Um, So if we make it really, really complex and and really hard, then then I I do think that's the risk here. I think part of this is also education for the consumer. I think that's a big part of it because some of the resistance would be like, whoa, someone's getting access to my bank account or someone's getting access. I think a lot of it is just explaining some of the, the, the ways that a company can get access. It needs to get your permission and goes through your bank, you know, a lot of those kind of things. And then some of the 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 cool products that are coming from it, such as the rent advantage, how much better that can be as a result of that. So a big part of it, I think, is regulation, but another big part of it is sort of getting the consumer and the users um, invested in this and wanting this in Canada. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Part of what makes this challenging is like, oh, what does open banking mean? It's sort of like a, you know, as a term, it's sort of hard to know what it means. And I, I and like we can't fault consumers for not getting excited about like the plumbing or the infrastructure. Like if you went up to consumers 20 years ago and said, like, you know, you should get excited about like open telecoms. We're gonna install these like fancy towers in your neighborhood. And this is the spe- this is the specification of the boxes we're gonna put on the towers. Consumers yeah. can be like, why should I care? But you're, if you're <laughs> like, you're going to have a cell phone and you can make phone calls, people are going to be like, yeah, that makes sense. That sounds really exciting. And I think mm-hmm. it's the same thing. We can't fault consumers for not getting excited about the term open banking. Consumers are very clear what they want. We have millions of people in Canada who have signed up to various technology, to various services that use screen scraping. Like the mm-hmm. demand is there. Screen scraping is not the best way to do it. A proper open banking system is better. Consumers are, are way ahead on this. You know, we just need to build the infrastructure to make it work better. I love the content in your voice, Andrew. Yeah, we can tell you're passionate about it. Well, look, that's actually a great segue into how we usually like to end the podcast. And uh, I don't know if you've already answered this question, but normally we like to ask, you know, looking at yourself 10 years from now, uh, looking back on what's been achieved either in your company or in the fintech space as a whole, what would you like to have seen done by then? Is the answer open banking here, or is there something else that is an issue? Well, I hope we haven't had to wait ten years for, for open banking. <laughs> I hope I hope that's yeah. that's a much uh, you know more near term accomplishment. I mean, I think I think in the space broadly, I really hope we have a number, a much greater number of significant of fintechs that have reached significant scale. Mm-hmm. We have a lack of competition in financial services in Canada. That's been articulated clearly by the Competition Bureau, by lots and lots of people. We're fortunate to have some great banks and others in Canada. What we need is just more. We need more choice for consumers, more competition. And I think that will strengthen the system. It'll make it even more reliable and secure, not less. And so I hope we have a number of large, like full-scale national slash global companies in the fintech space 
So the way people talk, you know, point to Shopify in the e-commerce space, we should be able to point to five to 10 large-scale fintechs. And certainly my intention would be that Borwell is one of those. And when it comes to offering a real complete solution for consumers who are working to get on top of their finances, you know, that will be the obvious choice uh, to do that. So, you know, we have lots more to go. We're at the, the very early innings here in our journey. And I think fintech is in the very early innings of, of its journey, both in Canada and globally. You know, the amount of market cap that fintech has grown by in the last 10 years is really dwarfed by the amount of market cap that the traditional finance sector is dwarfed by during that same period. Uh, there was a an interesting study, you know, saying that, but I, I can share if that's of interest to you guys. Anyhow, so there's there's lots and lots of room still for innovation in financial services, and uh, really excited to be part of that. Quick follow up question to that: You mentioned the word globally a couple of times. There is there plans to do something outside of Canada with Barwell? Look, I think there's lots that we that we're building that is that is applicable outside of the Canadian market. Certainly in the short term, we have lots to do here, and you know what is the biggest challenge in consumer fintech it is a quite it's getting customers to know who you are and to use your product and we've solved that problem uh to a large extent in canada we have as you know a hundred thousand people a day logging into borowell and so you know there's lots and lots more we can do for our existing members and the people who will become members in the days and weeks and months ahead so in the short term we're very much focused on this market in 10 years why not it would be uh, it would be very exciting to be in many other markets as well Cool. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, thanks, Andrew. That was really great. My uh, pleasure. Great to be yeah. uh, chatting with you both. Yeah, that was awesome. So until next time, this is Finchpreneur. Thanks for tuning in.